My friends, I am so blessed and so honored to do the work that I do every day, whether as a speaker or as an author or as a podcast host. I get to empower you to live, to work, and to lead inspired. That's my job, and I feel incredibly blessed to do it. Over the past 12 years, I've grown from a single speech in front of three incredibly bored third-grade Girl Scouts to now influencing several million individuals around the world. Through that growth, I've been able to invite others to do this amazing, incredible mission-centered work with me. I have a team of rock stars. Seriously, they are self-starting, they're deeply driven, they're heart-led, passionate, entrepreneurial rock stars. And as a team, we've gotten really clear that yes, we inspire more than 250,000 people online each week. And yes, we inspire more than 50,000 people at live speaking events each year. And yes, we've inspired a couple hundred thousand people through my number one national best-selling book, On Fire, with another book, one that I'm even more excited about, in the works for 2020. But we want to grow the Live Inspired movement exponentially. And we want to help wake people up from accidental living so that they can truly live their lives on fire. To do this, we recognize the need to better leverage social media, to better utilize our email and new technology. And so, my friends, drum roll, please. Come on. Here we go. We are hiring. We are hiring. We are looking for a new colleague to join us in the Live Inspired movement. Our new colleague will be our digital marketing strategist specifically using social media, email, and new technology to bring everyone else in the marketplace a better, more inspired experience with me, with our community, so that we can invite more friends to truly live inspired. So what do you think? Does this sound like it might be a great fit for you? Do you want to help us change the world one life at a time by using the best of your talents, your creativity, and your experiences to help inspire others? If you want to learn more or you know someone who might, get more information on my website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash careers. I'm going to read that one off one more time because I really want you and those that you know who have a mission, heart, and the ability and the desire to change the world to check this one out. johnolearyinspires.com forward slash careers. Can't wait to hear from you. So my friends, let's go ahead and jump into today's Live Inspired podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Have you ever met an individual who is so accomplished that they have done more in their short life than you could do in four of yours. That is going to be part of the story you hear today, but rather than feeling bad about yourself, I think you are going to be incredibly inspired to do more with the life that you still have in front of you. Hale Harper, that's today's guest, is a humanitarian. He is an award-winning actor. He's a best-selling author. He's an entrepreneur, a health and wellness ambassador. 
He's a philanthropist. But rather than reading any more of his wildly impressive bio, we brought him onto this podcast to share his unbelievably impactful life. And yet, my friends, in hearing it, you will be encouraged. You're going to be inspired. You're going to be challenged to think even more expansively in regards to what is possible in your own life. So today, I encourage you right now to open wide your eyes, your hearts, and your journals as we get ready to bring on the amazingly talented Hill Harper. Hill, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Great to be on, John. Man, I've been bragging on you. Uh, You have an incredible bio. You've done some remarkable work. For those who don't know you yet, don't really know your life story, tell us what you're most excited about that you're working on right now. Well, you know, right now, I've been traveling the country and talking to people about financial literacy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Money is not taught in schools. We teach math from first grade to 12th grade. Um, but teaching money and your relationship to money is not taught at, at, at any grade level. And it's something that I got into when I wrote my, my book, The Wealth Cure, mm-hmm. um, just thinking about working with people through my foundation. As I was working with folks, whether it was young people or people that were just starting their careers or people that were just starting a family, you know, it seemed that every issue I would talk to them about somehow would revert all the way back to money and their relationship to money and how it may be impacting them in a negative way. And I was like, you know, there's got to be a way to, to, to sort of shift people's perspective on, on their relationship and think you know, get them to think about money as a tool, be very agnostic to it, not about uh, I need to make money or I need to have money or I need to get rich. It's no, money's just a tool, just like a hammer. Hammer Hammers can be very effective tools in building things up. They also can be very effective in tearing things down. Mm. And money is the exact same way. And, and so I started this work around financial literacy and most recently partnered with one of the big three credit rating agencies called Experian. And I just want to remind people, you are not your credit score. There's no reason to get emotional or stressed about it, but it does impact your life in so many different ways. And that's why doing this program with Experian Boost, the idea of boosting your score by adding in utility payments, cable cable bills, um, cell phone bills, anything you pay automatically through a bank account, you can now load in through the Experian Boost program. What loading this information does is it gives you positive payment history to improve your score. So I'm pretty excited about it because I'm seeing people really take on their own finances and take on their own life and hopefully use money to create and and, and live out their goals and dreams. Oh, man, I love it. And it's part of the reason why you're on our show. You mentioned earlier that money, savings, finances, it's not really taught in school. And candidly, it's usually not taught at home either. You grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, and you are the son of two doctors who taught you an awful lot, not only about money, but about life. So I'd like you just for a moment to brag on mom and dad for a moment. Why don't we begin with your mom and then talk about your your father? Okay. Well, you know, my mother is truly a trailblazer. Um, Her name is Marilyn Hill Harper. And my grandfather, Harold Hill, who I'm named after, he had a pharmacy in Seneca, South Carolina that served the black community uh, in Seneca during Jim Crow segregation. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, certainly in, in, in the South, uh, you know, African-Americans couldn't go to Rexall or Walgreens. 
um, you know, which were the CVS or the Rite Aid of that time, but still needed prescription medicine. So my grandfather had Piedmont Pharmacy. It was a very old school type of pharmacy, you know, with the marble counter and the soda fountain. My mother grew up in that small town. And what's amazing about that is as a woman growing up when she grew up and you were thinking about going into medicine, you are most certainly becoming a a nurse. There were Mm -hmm. so few doctors. And then add on the fact that she's a, a black woman from the South, small town South, to think about becoming a physician. Um, then you start getting into the 0.001 percentage, and then to actually choose a technical hmm. uh, uh, profession within medicine, which is she became an anesthesiologist, which again, men, very few women were going into that, no matter who they were. So she clearly was like 0.00001% of you know achievement and aspiration, and she became a doctor. I've written five books, and, and I always give credit to my mother. On, on me being uh, a published author in a New York Times bestseller because uh, she wrote a book uh, called Wearing Purple with her friends years and years and years ago. And so the idea of, of publishing a book wasn't foreign to me and it wasn't something that that seemed you know out of the realm because she uh, was a published author. She was a physician. She was a professor. Uh, she ultimately became a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, which is one of the top medical schools in the country. You know, I'm 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 very impressed with my mother. She's a she's a one of a kind. She's a trailblazer. She's truly an American hero. She's an American success story. Part of what attracted me to invite you under to our show is not only your story and your resume and the work that you're doing, but where you come from. And that not only includes like where you were born, but your mother and her father and now your father. So he'll talk about your dad. He was born in a small town as well. Uh, in Fort Madison, Iowa, which is right on the Mississippi River. It's a little bit bigger than my mom's town of Seneca, and it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful city. His father was a doctor. He was a family practitioner, OBGYN, and what made him remarkable is that he grew up in a family. He had five brothers, and they, the, my great-grandfather was... Uh, did the the waterworks in the in, in in Fort Madison? So he was laying water pipe and and getting the water and doing all that all that work. And he couldn't afford to send all of his his sons to to college and medical school. So he sent them one at a time. And so the first one went, and and then when that one finished, the next one went, and then they started helping as they started working, helping to pay for the next to go. So all five of the boys became doctors, mm. which is remarkable, right? You know, so it's again, it's unbelievable. you're talking about African-American in the, in the 20s. And so the they all became doctors, again, Howard Medical School. And this is something we don't talk enough about. The historically black colleges and universities in this country are extremely underfunded, extremely undersupported, but they have done so much to help so many because but for the existence of the HBCUs, mm-hmm. and even to this day, but for their existence, um, there's so many people that wouldn't have access to, to education and, and, and the transformative effect of, of education. Um, you know, we could have a much deeper dive into inequality and into how things have happened. And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but listen, we have to talk about it um, because it's real. And the HBCUs have done an amazing job. 
and figuring out ways to support HBCUs, I think, is, a, is, is an important thing moving forward as well as looking back. All that's to say, my grandfather came back to Fort Madison, established a practice. This is a really interesting story. The local banks wouldn't set up an account for him, you know, a business account where take his money. And so the way the urban legend story has gone is that he had to keep whatever money he was earning from his practice, not a lot, but some under, you know, like under his mattress, so to speak, because the banks wouldn't let a black man open an account. When the depression hit, he was one of the few people that had cash and, and availability to cash. And he took that and he bought a building where he ended up putting his other brothers that were doctors in practice. And they kind of established a hospital and they had a, this thing called the Harper Apartments as well. So they had an apartment, apartments above and a hospital below. And um, they ended up being the place where black women from four states, whether it's Missouri or Illinois, Nebraska, or just different places that people would come to come to you know, have their babies uh, here and see a doctor. Um, and so he was servicing a, a very large community. And my father and his younger brother, they ended up going to Howard Medical School. And that's where my father met my mother. Where they met. My father's a psychiatrist. Then we moved back to Iowa to go to the University of Iowa for their residency program. They both went to the University of Iowa for their residency work. And my older brother, Harry, who was named after my father, Harry Harper III, was born. And then I was born two and a half years later. We lived in Keokuk, Iowa first. Uh, when I was born, and then we moved back up to Fort Madison, Iowa, which is right up the road, mm -hmm. and lived in Fort Madison until my parents split, and then my mother went to San Francisco. We followed, ended up growing up later in you know high school in Sacramento, California, with my father. That's that you know that's probably a much longer story <laughs> than any listener wanted to hear about my parents and growing up, but it's the first time I've told that story in a long time. Man, I've so I've heard parts of that story, and I was so hoping you would share that story because when I when I read your books, when I follow your story, I hear the the story of a man who's a trailblazer, and I think it's important to recognize that we frequently become like those who come before us, and so you're you're generationally built into become a trailblazer later on in life, and I'm just curious, your mom and your dad and your grandparents, did they talk about this growing up or was it just modeled and you just witnessed what it looked like to do this? It was modeled. They certainly would reinforce the idea that there's nothing you can't do, you know, that there's no limitation. And I think the modeling is important. And that's why it's so important for me to to write the books and to attempt to empower other folks by modeling the same, because I don't really think it has to be parental. You know, I mm -hmm. think you can have it. I think you can have mentorship on paper, which in the form of books, you can have mentorship in the form of videos you watch or films you watch or, or what you do or articles you read or podcasts you listen to. You know, it, it all, it, it doesn't matter what the source is. It's just as long as the information is good information and you apply it. And, and the most important thing is the empowerment of the message. And because I hope everyone that's listening to our voices understand that they are magnificent, that they are brilliant. There's nothing they, they can't achieve. And, and, it, and it's partly our responsibility to make this world a better place. You know, there's so much vitriol today and there's so much negative speech and there's so much talk. It's not about winning over somebody else or being able to stick your head on top of their head so you can get higher. It's about actually creating better world, creating better results, creating a place where more people have more opportunity to be happy, right? Not less. Mm. 
that's what I've learned from my family. That's certainly what my grandfather, Harold Hill, and, you know, with Piedmont Pharmacy was doing. And that's certainly what my grandfather, Harry Harper, was doing in Iowa, really? attempting to figure out ways to make people's lives better, improve the community. And that means everybody. I'm just following up on, on that journey in a different way, even though I do play a doctor on TV, ironically. But um, <laughs> It's know. so awesome. And, and an officer, I mean, you know, so like we'll talk about, a little bit about both. Did you talk a lot with your parents growing up about being African-American in this country and whether that was in Iowa or in California, some of the challenges that you were going to face or was it just stuff that you lived through and they were there to support you afterwards? You know, it was definitely, we talked about it all the time. We talked about things that I don't think you should have to talk about. For instance, if and when I get stopped or pulled over by a police officer, knowing that they're going to approach me in a certain way that isn't positive and knowing how to conduct myself in such a way that I don't put myself in jeopardy. These types of discussions are real. Um, they have to be had. And unfortunately, we shouldn't be in a place where they should have to be had. And certainly discussions beyond that. You know, I remember it was in high school, the Sadie Hawkins dance, and um, a white girl asked me to go, and then her parents told her that she couldn't. Mm -hmm. And so then I was I had to talk to my parents. I was like, "Why can't? What? What does it make you know?" And in having to have that discussion, that her parents were saying she couldn't take me because I'm black to, to you know, the, the dance. Just like as men, we can't understand the types of situations women quite often have to think about and come under in terms of vulnerabilities and things and mm -hmm. their own safety, walking alone at night, et cetera. And, and I, I think that people who, uh, you know, white folks in this country can't necessarily put, the, it's very difficult for them to put themselves in the shoes of, of black people and, and the types of certain jeopardy that, that, that we have to think about and the types of things that, that we deal with as we go through our world. But it has to be something that is conscious and it has to be something that's discussed. At Harvard Law School, my entire third year thesis was about my family's interaction with the law. Mm. Professor Charles Ogletree, who's one of the great professors in the history of Harvard Law School, and he was my mentor and, and, and my, my advisor for that project. It was a really amazing project where I got to interview and discuss with my family members from all across the country how their interactions with law enforcement and police impacted their life in different ways. So you mentioned Harvard. We're going to talk about that. You went to Brown University. You got your bachelor's, I think, of arts. You were a valid Victorian of the department. Then you get your JD from the Harvard Law School, as well as a master's degree in public administration with honors, of course, from the Kennedy School of Government. Dude, it's it's an incredible resume. What what was it that you were driving toward back then? What was fueling that, that, that climb? You know, my, my family's real push about education was something that I took to heart. And it, and it really was about the idea that, I first of all, I think we teach young people the wrong thing about education. Okay, we, we, we tend to say, study this so you can do this. Mm -hmm. It's completely wrong. What we should do is let them know, become an educated human, study whatever, doesn't matter. So you have more options. The idea, the more educated you are, the more options you have. Options right. are are perhaps the most valuable thing you have in life. And so what happens if you tell, if you say, study this, you can do this, that's almost limiting options. You're saying, oh, you have to do this if you study that. No, you don't have to do anything you study. Just study something you enjoy. 
become a learned human, um, learn more, have more options in life, because the more education you have, the more options you have. And so education is just a resource. It's just a tool. For me, somehow I picked up on that messaging, and I wanted to go to school. I had the opportunity. I won a fellowship, a Sloan Fellowship, to study public policy. So I was like, oh, I'll study public policy. There was a, a, a lot of opportunity. I'm, I've always been interested in public service and, mm-hmm. and the functioning of community improvement. And so there's a lot of things, but I didn't necessarily think or know that I was going to do any of that as a career. It's just, I just wanted to learn. I just wanted to grow. I wanted to expand my mind and my mental capacity and expand, you know, people I was around, open doors to new ideas, new information, new people. And, you know, going to a place like the Kennedy School was amazing because it's 50% international students. And so you just meet people from all around the world and go doing things like, uh, you know, the Harvard Law School is great because they teach you about critical thinking and how to dissect something, how to think about it. While you're learning, you're also playing a little bit. Uh, I'm sure not only outside of the classroom, but also occasionally in the gym. I understand, brother, that you you are a, a pretty tough guy to play basketball against. And in one of the infamous games that you were a part of, you had, uh, you had at least one famous teammate. Can you talk about back in the Harvard days, a famous teammate that you got to play ball with? My my second or third day of law school. Well, first of all, it's an aside. If you ever saw the movie He Got Game, <laughs> you know that I'm a good basketball player. I mean, I'm playing with all pros in that game. You know, Ray Allen and you know all these guys. So you know, hey, come on, you know, you got to be pretty solid, man. I think you would beat me in a so, game of horse in my own backyard. <laughs> Ray Allen was, is, is a great ball player, one of the best shooters. He's, he's really incredible. But all that to say, <laughs> I, I, Hemingway Gymnasium at Harvard Law School. Second day of class, and I, I'm there playing by myself because the interesting thing about Harvard Law School is the library is full, but the gym is empty, and, <laughs> and I, obviously basketball is more fun with somebody else. And just as I'm about to walk out, and walks this tall, skinny guy, socks were pulled up a little too high, his shorts were a little too small, and, and, and I say, hey, man, you want to play basketball? He says, why else would I be in the gym? And I say, oh, my God. And until so we proceed to play, ask him his name. Say, my name's Barack. And... Barack Obama and I were the same. Turns out we we're the same class. We had two different sections. So uh-huh. uh, the, Harvard Law School is broken into four sections. So you, your first year, you take class with the exact same people every single class, and that's your section. But you know, we're two different sections, but the same class, and we just played a lot of basketball together. Became friends. I looked up to him, not just because he's taller than me. <laughs> uh, just you know, he. I was in my early twenties. He was almost thirty. Uh, he had taken about seven years off in between undergrad and grad school to do community organizing. And uh, he had a sense of purpose and gravitas, you know, somebody who's coming back to school because they had some goals uh, that they felt that their education wasn't quite where it needed to be to support some of their goals and dreams. And he had big goals and dreams. You know, I had big goals and dreams and, and, uh, and he's done quite well for himself. And I couldn't be more proud of, of who he, who he's become and, and what he's done and the fact that, that I got to uh, help and work and support during his presidency. So I think you taught him not only about basketball, but uh, my understanding, my reading on it is a little bit about life and even more about service. You got a letter while you were at Harvard from an inmate saying, what are you doing for the brothers on the inside? And you did not really have an answer for that letter, except to say, uh, not enough. Let's connect some time. And you set up a basketball game. Can, can you tell our listeners a bit about that game? I got a letter. I was, it was the Harvard Black Law Students Association, which is called Balsam. And I was 
the head of the community outreach, and this letter makes it makes its way to me from uh, Walpole Maximum Security Prison in Massachusetts, and end up having this conversation, basically saying, "Hey, Harvard Law School, black students, we don't we don't see you guys supporting us on the inside. What's going on?" And and I, you know, he was right. So I, you know, he and I started talking and going back and forth and trying to figure out, well, let's do something. Mm-hmm. Turns out. You know, one of the things we had in common, we both loved basketball. So we decided to play. And and so I called the warden, and the warden's like, no, what are you talking about? I've never <laughs> set up a basketball game. You're from Harvard, <laughs> huh? Like, like, what? We don't just have basketball games. And I was like, well, you know, why not? So we set up a game. You know, I went to my, my friends who I know love to play, and Barack was one of those guys. So I go to Barack, and I go to three other guys, and rent a van. We drive out to Walpole. The whole prison yes. stopped what they were doing and lined the court. The court actually got small because, you know, there was no room for the whole prison population. So it kept getting smaller and smaller and guys were betting on who was going to win based on warm-ups. And it was a lot of chatter and it was a, it was a lot of fun. And when President Obama was president, he became the first sitting president to visit a prison. Uh, while he was in office, and you know he's working on mass incarceration reform. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what my latest book is about. So it's one of the most important things to me. You know, the first time he ever visited a prison was with me. You know, before when we were in school. So obviously, those things are are you know you can you can draw a line between those dots and and exposure and to issues and things. But the funniest thing, and he tells this story, is has the guy what he was in for. The guy said. Who was guarding? And he said, "Double murder." And he stopped taking shots. And so, you know, <laughs> we ended up losing right. the game. Pass the next ball over the hill. <laughs> it's funny. You know, it's a it's a great story. One that I haven't told that many times, and, right. and, and something that I think folks should know uh, about. Also, we also need to be thinking about mass incarceration and, right. and the issues around the fact that we're, you know, five percent of the world's population, but we hold twenty five percent of the world's inmates. There's something wrong. You know, African-American men are 6% of the nation's population with 42% of the inmates. And there's no data that suggests that African-American men commit any more crime statistically than any other population or race. So what's going on? You know, something is going on that is not equitable and not just. And we all uh, are complicit in it if we are silent about it. Things need to happen. Things can change. And I think they will change, hopefully, for the better. On the backside, as a speaker, that's primarily what I do professionally. Twice a year, we always make an opportunity to step into that prison system. And for me, it's the most humbling experience in the world to be buzzed in, locked in, and then, believe it or not, accepted, accepted among these guys. And um, it, it changes the way I interact with folks afterwards. And one of the things we do because of that is my wife and I are active as big brothers and big sisters. I'm, I'm a board member on big brothers, big sisters, because we think one of the ways to make a difference is one life at a time. Just one life at a time is a big, big, big deal. You, you are the big brother. Oh yeah. Um, And I was also the national ambassador and spokesman for big brothers, big sisters of America. So I, um, I'm totally, totally on board with that. I actually was in your home state I got into some trouble. This is a story no one's ever heard. I got invited to speak in St. Louis. This is years ago. And I was a big brother at the time. And the Big Brothers organization said, hey, can we set up a table in the back mm-hmm. to recruit? Because we have 800 yes. kids on a waiting list. I said, you got to be kidding me. And I started doing research. 
you know, almost every major city has a waiting list between 400 and 800, depending on the size of the city, et cetera. And I said, that's atrocious, right? So I go into the speech. I'm passionate about the importance of service. And everyone is like, you know, giving me the amen corner. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and so at the end of the speech, I say, so who's going to raise their hand right now and sign up to be a big brother? And out of 2,000 people, like two hands go up. You would have seen, you know, John, my, I, I don't get like angry, angry. Yeah. I try to pretty even keeled but oh man i was i said you know you guys are yes. you should be ashamed of yourself there are 800 kids in this city who are asking for mentors they've gone through the trouble to sign up their family has signed up they want help and you're going to sit here in your black tie eating your rubber chicken dinners at this gala and amen corner me this whole 45 minutes but then when i ask you to actually do something you're going to sit on your hand. I don't think I've been invited back to St. Louis since. They got about 100 more sign-ups, you know, that <laughs> night after I went off. So I was happy about that. You are welcome back anytime. You may stay in my house right. and we will uh, not only get the amens together, but we'll uh, we'll lock the doors until we get a few signatures on the dotted line. We, we have more than 1,000 kids currently waiting. And we uh-huh. stopped taking names because you can't take more than this. It's getting ridiculous. And so for those listeners right now who are even thinking, maybe I can make a difference through my life, the answer is Yes. Now, where do you want to serve? But uh, the chicken dinner is in front of you, but so is the opportunity to make a difference. And Hill, you are uh, you're you laying don't out have the to gauntlet. Change your life. And this is the key. You don't have to change any element of your life to change the life of the child. Right. Just incorporate them into your life. Mm. That's all you have to do. When you go to the grocery store, take them with you. If you go to the ball game, if you go to a movie, if you go to the mall, if you go work out, right. whatever you do, if you go sit at home and play video games, whatever you do, just incorporate that child into your life. So therefore, they can interact with you, learn from you, and have a new view of the way to live and be inspired. Big Brothers Big Sisters is one of the best organizations out there. And please, if there's a thousand kids on the waiting list, oh man, that, it, just, it just hurts my heart. You could solve that. There are too many adults that are wonderful people that I know want to help. They get scared. They're like, I don't have time. I don't have the money. Right. It's not about time or money. It's just about incorporating somebody into your life. Well, and in addition to all that you've just said, the majority of us feel isolated and lonely. If that is true, and I believe it is, if that is true, what better way to feel less isolated and less lonely than to connect with a little one and just to do life together. So uh, there's the big plug for Big Brothers Big Sister. It was uh, not expected, but it showed up today on the interview with Hill Harper. Hill, in addition to serving and to impacting and doing all the things that you did, you eventually make a pretty radical pivot into acting. What was that about, man? When I was in college, I took a number of acting classes, and I just really loved it, you know, and it was also something I was good at and I enjoyed. And, And at the time, I didn't know how you make a career out of it necessarily, but I just knew I liked it. I knew that it was something that I wanted to follow was in my heart. And so when I went to grad school, I joined a repertory company in Boston so I could keep acting. It was called the Black Folks Theater Company of Boston. And so I kept doing plays and theater in Boston during grad school and slowly but surely just realized this is what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed it more than sitting in a law firm. You know, I did summer associate programs in law firms to get a sense of what that would be like. And I enjoyed that acting much more than that. And and realized that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I had an uncle who was my, my father's younger brother, who was a doctor as well, who was passed away. 
and I, he was actually sick with cancer at the time, and I was in grad school. And he basically said, you know, life is, is, is a precious gift and very short, and so follow your heart, mm-hmm. you know, because there's so many people were giving me advice, which is really bad advice, to say, hey, pay off your student loans first, take one of these high-paying law jobs first, once you pay off your student loans, then do what you want to do, and ultimately, and this is what he told me, and it's so true, and it sort of reverts back to what we were talking about money before. He said, if ever you're making a decision that's solely based on money, it's the wrong decision. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, money is a factor in the decision. It can be a factor, but if that's the primary factor, then it's the wrong way to go, particularly if you're talking about your career and life and, and life choices. And so I made a different set of choices and became one of the most overeducated late night waiters. <laughs> in the history of waiting tables. And so I was serving burgers and fries from 11 at night to 7 in the morning, and then I would sleep a little bit, and then I'd go pound the pavement and then take acting class in the evening and then go back. It was a different set of choices mm. that I made because it was about my happiness and not about the way people would think about me or what they would say behind my back and be like, this guy has two graduates from Harvard, but he's a waiter. Yeah. You, know? you know, the beautiful thing, and there's this wonderful quote that I really attempt to live by, is that key is to really care about people and care about the community, but simultaneously don't care what they think. So if you can live your life where you're actually attempting to help other people and really care for them, but then if you can also simultaneously not care about what they think, you're going to live an amazing life because you're not going to be making choices based on what other people think about you. You're going to be making choices about what's in your heart, and you're also going to be making the world better because you care about people. That, you know, that's a simultaneous line that I attempt to walk. Um, the better I can get towards getting getting all the way there, and, and obviously I fall off on both both sides of those balls quite often, um, but the better I get at, at, at getting better at that, I can I feel like I'm becoming a better human. And we, we could spend more than an hour just talking about your career acting, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't tether you to the phone line for that long, but as you look back at this incredible career, is there one role that was somehow more meaningful than all the others? You know, there, there are roles that are meaningful for different reasons. If, if we're just talking about straight acting, the right. role that I'm probably most proud about as far as my acting work and the quality of acting is a movie I did called The Visit years ago where I played a guy who was in prison dying of AIDS. It was based off a true story, and I really believe the spirit of the man was with me when I was doing that movie. You know, I had his obituary above the door in my trailer, and every time I'd go to set, you know, I'd look at it and I'd touch it. And he, he was with me. So that's one project that I'm most proud of as far as acting. As far as just experientially, um, a movie I did in Ireland called The Nephew, where I was in Ireland for three months. And it was, you know, one of the best experiences I've had. Mm. And then, you know, just in terms of longevity and being proud of just being able to see a, a long-running series through as a professional, you know, CSI New York was was wonderful for that because it was nine years and it was an opportunity to play the same character for a long time, but also see a show from the beginning to its end. And, and that's a rare opportunity that you don't get all the time. You know, you're lucky to just get on a show and then for it to last that long, but also to be able to be asked back that many times and be a part right. of something special. Really uh, proud of that. So for different reasons, I'd say different projects. You know, The Good Doctor that I'm on right now is a wonderful show because it's so well written and it's, you know, it's from the producer of House and it's so well acted. It's, it's about overcoming obstacles, celebrating difference, 
And so I really love the message of the show, even though my character's kind of like the bad guy a little bit. <laughs> but that's still fun to play. So I really enjoy The Good Doctor, and, I, and I'm psyched that people are loving the show and watching it. We'll be back this fall, you know, late September um, on ABC, 10 o'clock. We are excited about being back in our same time slot, rocking and rolling and continuing a, a great show. Well, one of your colleagues, a fellow named Gary Sinise, who I know you know well, was on our podcast. And I, I like bringing on folks who aren't just talking about, you know, the work in front of the camera, but their work outside of it. And certainly you are exhibit A of that in action. I'd like you to talk a little bit about Manifest Your Destiny Foundation. MYD, or the Manifest Your Destiny Foundation, was started uh, about 11 years ago. I started it after I published my first book with that same subtitle. My first book was called Letters to a Young Brother, Manifest Your Destiny. It's all about helping and empowering people to achieve their goals and their dreams. You know, whatever you want to create, what is your destiny? What, what, where do you want to go? How can we help you get there? Obviously, for me, a lot of it starts with education, so educational empowerment and getting people through school and making sure they stay out of trouble, et cetera. So we have a program called the Summer Empowerment Academy, which is SCA, which we do with, for eighth graders going into ninth because a lot of the data shows that if you can get a young person, particularly from the most challenged backgrounds, through ninth grade successfully, their chance of graduating high school exponentially goes up. And we focus on empowerment around ninth grade. We have that summer program happening in Detroit this summer as well as Los Angeles, so two different parts of the country this year. So I couldn't be more excited about our SEA program. You know, we're going to continue to grow and continue to do more programs across the country. People can check it out, www.mydf.org. And it's an organization, it's a foundation that's also expanding into the art. I have uh, an arts foundation that I've been working on, just encouraging young people to do more art, be more creative, because a lot of arts programs funding is obviously leaving the school system. So I think... Those of us in the nonprofit space have to sort of pick up that ball and supplement that type of programming and that type of creative endeavor. So I'm adding that to MYD's charge, and I'm excited. Do you, do you feel like your mom and dad, your grandmother and grandfather on both sides, that their DNA and their experiences and their pain and their joy and their optimism and their trailblazing, that that, that continues forward in the work that you're doing today? Certainly all of their stuff, but I'm driven because I've done one-tenth of what they've done, and, and I, I want to just sort of get to their level. The hardships that they've had to overcome are so much more significant than mine because they set me up for success. You know, I'm, I was already set up for that because they created a platform for me to not have to worry about where my next meal is coming from, to never have to worry about whether we had a roof over our head or whether the heat was going to work. My story is not that story. You know, my story is not the story of the person who had to overcome all of that and still did well. I didn't experience a tragic accident when I was younger. You know, there are things that other folks have had to overcome already in their lives that have done great things that I haven't. So I always feel that it's incumbent upon me to push even harder, push more, because I have been so blessed. I have been so fortunate. I'm so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful to God. I'm grateful to my family. I'm grateful for all the opportunities. And I don't take these things for granted. I don't sit back and say, oh, you know, look what I've done. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there, there are people, uh, you know, leaders in this country that have grew up with a great deal of privilege that act like all their success has come from them. And it makes me sick because at the end of the day, because I had great grandparents and great parents that did well and worked hard, they gave me a leg up 
I understand that I had a leg up. I had a head start. Mm. The things I've achieved are because of them and also because of the head start that I had, not because of some innate genius on my part, certainly. I'm just here to try to scale positive impact and, and hopefully figure out new and different ways to make the world a little bit better place, particularly folks who had the reverse experience, meaning they've been set back. They've had more hindrances. They've had less opportunity, more obstacles. Let's figure out a way to help them the most. So, man, you, you uh, looking back on your life, it's an incredible <laughs> resume of success and impact and accomplishment, including 2004 and 2014, Sexiest Man Alive. Wow. So, uh, that it, means I'm doing 2024. I only have to start working out. I think you should be on there every year like uh, Matthew McConaughey. I'm going for it. I better hit the gym, though, a little bit harder. <laughs> and, uh, and Me too. <laughs> see some physicians soon. But uh, as you look forward, you know, with such optimism and grit and going through cancer diagnosis and everything else that you've endured, Hill, what are you most excited about? You know, uh, I'm most excited about what opportunity lies for positive mass change through technology. Technology would either be something that really improves the quality of a lot of people's lives, particularly people who've been locked out of opportunity, or it can actually widen the what I call the wealth gap or, or, and the education gap and all these different gaps that, that are associated with privilege and and not having privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And so my focus has been on, you know, how can we leverage technology to actually improve access to information, improve access to wealth, like I, we talked about at the beginning, you know, access to credit impacts your life and the cost of credit, the cost of capital, all of these things, technology, if we use it correctly, can actually help lower those barriers, lower the costs, people. Um, one of the number one quotes from my book, The Wealthcare People Pull Out, I wrote, you can't be free if the cost of being used too high. If we can leverage technology to lower the cost of people being them, meaning not just monetary right. costs, but also health, wellness, all of these different things, I'm excited to use those in a smart way to increase access and whatever way I can use my platform as well for that. That's, that's what's getting me charged up. Well, man, it's charging me up hearing about it. And if we can serve over on our end, we are all in. Hill, we have seven questions that we ask every guest as we wrap up our episodes. Number one, what is the best book you've ever read? Man, that's making me choose one. You know what? I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to say The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. Mm. And I, I say that because, you know, I don't know if it's the best book I ever read, but it's one of the most impactful. Probably it's the first motivational book that someone ever gifted to me when I was in, you know, in my teens. And it, and that book opened my eyes and I think led the way to wow. a lot of the empowerment stuff that, that I've done and, and, uh, and showed me that a book can help you think about your life in a different way. Mm -hmm. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. Hill, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I would say fearlessness. You know, I think when I was a kid, the one thing that people would say is, like, he'll do anything. <laughs> you, know, he, you know, I remember I, I uh, in Iowa on the farm, my, my grandparents had a farm in Iowa. There was this kind of little ravine, and all of my cousins who were older than me were scared to jump the ravine. And so I built this jump with some bricks and a, and a, and a board, and I rode the bike as fast as I could, and I took off in the jump. 
and I hit the other side of the ravine with my front wheel. I flipped over. I did like a double flip over. I knocked the window. I thought I was dead. <laughs> I literally I couldn't breathe. I'm lying there. But, you know, stuff like that. I was I was that kid who would do anything. And that level of fearlessness, uh, I wish I still had that. I'm still willing to take some risks and, and step out there. But that, I think when I was young, I would, I would, you know, I had no, I had no barometer. It's kind of like that movie Free Solo. Yes. I love that guy. Oh I man, love I, him. I think you're more that little kid on his dirt bike with that brick, uh, brick jump than you may even recognize. So uh, that fearlessness trait remains alive and well within you. I know. So uh, Hill, if your home caught fire and all living things and pets, people are all out safe. You have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one item you would grab? Probably grab my poetry book from when I was a kid. You know, those poems that I wrote when I was young that I, I still have in a book. I've never uh, transposed them to a computer or anything mm -hmm. like that. So I, I would grab that. Man, I encourage you to, to transpose it and then share it. I have a feeling there's some magic uh, within those lines. If, if you could I got to do that. I, you know, I think about it all the time, but I, it's one of those things where you say, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But yeah, I got it. You know, that's a, kind of, a, a young nephew or a niece and uh, a little summer work. I think it would fill them with such encouragement and hope. And then it also safeguards it from ever being lost or destroyed. So I, I really hope you do it. And then I hope you share it. I like it. We just created a summer job. for You're welcome. Little niece out there, you are welcome. You old brother O'Leary. So, uh, Hill, just a few more <laughs> questions. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? Oh, that's easy. I'd sit next to Jesus. I, I think Jesus and I need to, you know, have a <laughs> long talk over over a margarita or a pina colada. I think Jesus and I would we would chop it up and and have a great discussion. What's I your would, first question of Jesus? Why do we allow children to suffer? Wow. And then, if you could trade seats just for a moment, what do you imagine Jesus's reply being? Mm, you know. Um, I don't, to be honest, I have no idea because I don't, I don't, I don't see, I, I can't understand a good right. reason for it. Well, maybe our job isn't to understand it, but to do something about it. Absolutely. What would, what would you tell your 20 year old self? This hot shot brown kid getting ready to shift off into Harvard. What would you tell that 20 year old young man? Oh, every, every idea, impulse you have, act on it. <laughs> don't sit on it. Act on it. Go. Hill Harper, my friend, it has been said that all great people, and I have one on the Live Inspired podcast today, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Dedicated his life to impact and legacy in a positive, in a positive way, and that's it. Hill Harper, thank you for dedicating your life to impact, and uh, it has dramatically impacted the rest of us in a positive way. We thank you for your work. And we know that your best years remain in front of you. So uh, thank you for being part of the solution. John, thanks so much. And thanks for this podcast. And, and, and thanks to everybody who, who takes the time and, and took the time to listen. You know, we're all in this together. Dr. King said, we're all tied together in a single garment of mutual destiny. I truly believe that. I, there's nobody, uh, whether they agree with the, the way I think about the world or not, we're all in it together, every single one of us. If, if we all sort of rethink that way, it's not us and them. It's not you. and and somebody else. It's us, all of us this together. We can truly make this world a much better place. My friends, that is Hill Harper. I am John O'Leary. We are called to make this world a better place, and this is your day. 
Embrace it and live inspired. Okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. John, we get it, man, we get it. Rate and review the podcast. But my friends, listen, it really does help other people find our show, which allows us to grow our Live Inspired community. Don't you want to help other people feel fired up about their lives just the way that you feel fired up about yours? So please go right now to Apple Podcast or anywhere that you listen to your show and give us a five-star rating and then go ahead and share what you enjoy most about the Live Inspired podcast together. We can make a difference.